Welcome to Queer by Candlelight, hosted by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. Hi, welcome to the third episode of Queer by Candlelight. I'm Elizabeth Crane, and last night I dreamt I went to Manderley again. And I'm Dahlia Kumar, and right now I'm sitting at a desk surrounded by things labeled with the name Rebecca. This episode, we're obviously discussing the 1940 Alfred Hitchcock film, Rebecca. We are going to spoil this movie, so if you're worried about spoilers, uh, be warned that we will be discussing the entire plot. So this movie was based on the 1938 novel by Daphne du Maurier and was written by Robert E. Sherwood and Joan Harrison and adapted by Philip MacDonald and Michael Hogan. Uh, There was a thing in movies from this era where the writers and the adapters are sort of the same thing, but also slightly different jobs. Um, So there's like sort of four writers, but also there's not. During this review, we're going to be calling the second Mrs. DeWinter either the narrator or the protagonist, because the second Mrs. DeWinter is an extremely long name to say, and it's really crucial to the story that this character is never given a name, uh, but that also makes it very hard to remember. This movie was also made during the height of the Hayes Code, but like other Hitchcock films, which I honestly, I still have to watch, so <laughs> um, this does have a strong queer subtext. Yeah, this is a common theme throughout a lot of Hitchcock's movies, which I personally am kind of a nerdy movie fan of, but despite the fact that it was made under these really strict guidelines, which we're going to discuss very heavily in the analysis portion of the episode, there are definitely very noticeable and prevalent queer themes throughout. So in the first half of this episode, we're going to go over what actually happens in this movie, so that if you've never seen it, you can still follow along with our analysis. So the film begins with the iconic line, Last night I dreamt I went to Manderley again, which is also the opening line of the novel. It's incredibly iconic. I don't know why I think this line is so fun, but I definitely do. (laughs) So our protagonist dreams that she's walking through the burnt ruins of Manderley, and she thinks she sees a light in the window, but then it goes back to being a ruin. And she says that she can never go back there, but she often does go back in her dreams, which is a lovely, mysterious bit of foreshadowing for us. She says that the story starts for her in the south of France, and then we go to a shot of the ocean with some dramatic music in the background, and the ocean is thematically important throughout uh, this film, like... Manderley is near the ocean, the south of France is near the ocean, it plays a big role. Um, And we see she's like walking up this hill or something and then she sees Maxim who's looking down at the ocean seemingly about to jump. The narrator yells at him to stop and then Maxim acts like he wasn't about to jump and tells her to leave. So in the next scene we see the narrator with Mrs. Van Hopper who's sort of an older woman. Um, and Mrs. Van Hopper points out who Maxim de Winter is. So this is the first time we get a formal introduction for this character. We learn that he's extremely wealthy and famous, and he's also played by Laurence Olivier, who 
even I know is like a film icon from this era, mostly just because I'm a theater kid and know about the Olivier Awards. I hope that's the same person. Actually, I've never actually bothered to check, but I think it is. Um, and I've definitely heard about how many like famous roles he's had. So I feel like if you were watching this movie in 1940, you'd be like, oh my god, it's that guy. He also looks like a frat boy. He kind of looks like a frat boy. <laughs> he like and he has boy. a creepy little mustache. <laughs> yeah. And he's also like a little old, but I feel like that's part of the like weird power dynamic. And he's supposed to be like a little old. Yeah. So Mrs. Van Hopper claims that she and Maxim de Winter are old friends, but she's clearly trying to like social climb and they barely know each other. Maxim has a conversation with her, but is clearly more interested in the narrator than Mrs. Van Hopper. And he says that he always travels alone and walks away dramatically. Mrs. Van Hopper then yells at the narrator for trying to force herself into the conversation, even though she literally didn't say anything the whole conversation. And then she drops some lovely exposition to the audience that Maxim's wife has died recently and that he's never gotten over it. I love it when they just drop random exposition. It's like, wow, thank you. She's so helpful. (laughs) Um, the next morning at breakfast, Maxim invites the narrator to eat dinner with him after she accidentally spills a vase of flowers all over a table. She's clearly a little shy, a little timid, especially around Maxim, who's, who we know has been established as like a kind of powerful man. And Maxim apologizes for being rude. The narrator then explains her relation to Mrs. Van Hopper, which is that she's a paid companion. And that she's also an orphan, um, her father having died recently. Maxim then invites her to drive to wherever she's planning on sketching that afternoon. She sketches him, but it was okay. It wasn't Picasso. (laughs) It was okay. (laughs) It sort of sets you up to think that she's like downplaying her skills. Like, oh, she's so cute. She doesn't want to brag. But then you see her sketch and it's like not good and you're like oh she wasn't lying she wasn't downplaying her honestly props to her though you know unapologetically standing by her art even if it's only mediocre do what you love queen exactly (laughs) um and he's pretty nice about it and says that she should sketch the coastline because it's more interesting and then they talk about Mandalay. and maxim says that he never wants to go back then they kind of go back to talking about drawing and the narrator mentions that she wants to draw the ocean but doesn't realize that it's a tender subject for maxim and then maxim decides to drive her back to the hotel when she gets back to the hotel mrs van hopper is telling the nurse she's hired because she's sick how maxim's previous wife rebecca drowned and how he's never recovered from her tragic drowning which keys the audience into why Maxim was acting so upset when the narrator was discussing going swimming in the ocean. I love how all Mrs. Manhopper does is just provide exposition and to yell at the narrator. Yeah, that's her two moods, exposition and yelling. So the next day, Maxim runs into the narrator on her way to a tennis lesson, which she says she doesn't really want to do, and he offers to take her on a drive instead, and then promptly tosses her tennis racket into a bush. <laughs> Such a vibe. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. I know, it's really funny. And then Mrs. Van Hopper decides that the narrator must be flirting with the tennis instructor because she would never guess that the narrator's been going out with Maxim. 
there's several scenes of the two of them flirting at some sort of dance and on drives and he says he likes her because of her joy and naivete which blots out his dark past after she asks him if he only is asking her out due to charity not another emo boy but in disguise of a frat boy that's why you don't see it coming (laughs) (laughs) this frat boy could never be emo but he is (laughs) however although this is a sweet sentiment he words his response very harshly and makes her cry damn rocky start rocky start it doesn't get much better to be honest (laughs) The next morning, Mrs. Van Hopper says that she got a letter from her daughter who's getting engaged and they must leave immediately. The narrator then freaks out and tries to call Maxim, but he's out riding. Just as they're about to leave, she finds out that he's back in the hotel, but he's not picking up because he's singing loudly in the shower. This scene was so funny, so comedic. This man, he thinks he's like some opera singer or something going on in the shower. And then we pan to the phone. It's just ringing and ringing, but he can't hear it. Yeah, he was going like full opera too. Like he was not just humming. Honestly, go off, King. Go off. Like if you want to sing in the shower, sing in the shower. Um, She then goes up to his room and tells him that she's leaving and wanted to say goodbye. He then asks her if she'd prefer to go to Mandalay. She interprets this as him asking her to be his secretary, but he's not. He says, I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. I feel like this kind of shows the power dynamic between the two. Also, like, him calling her, you little fool, like, wow, that's so cute. Look at them. No. (laughs) It's like, okay. It's not a good look. Like, if you're insulting the person you're proposing to in your proposal speech, that's really, like, red flag number one. Yeah. Also, the fact that she thought he met as a secretary and nothing more. Yeah. Like, how much does she really know about what kind of a relationship she's in? Yeah, they just met, like, two days ago, you guys. Like, they, they went on, what, a couple of drives? She drew him really badly? And now they're in love and they're going to get married? Wow, what a healthy relationship, you guys. To this, the narrator says that she's not the sort of person that men just marry and she wouldn't belong. But he says he thinks that he can judge whether she'd belong with him and asks if she loves him. And she says she does love him most dreadfully. Oh, most dreadfully. (laughs) Oh, the drama. The drama. But it's also like, girl, you met this man two days ago and he has a stupid little mustache and you think you love him? God. (laughs) The mustache is deeply unfortunate. I'm sorry. He says that he'll remind her that she said this one day and that she won't believe him when he does. Also, he says that it's a pity that she'll grow up. It's giving Leonardo DiCaprio. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It is. He's like, you're 26? Nah, dog, you're too old. You're grown. (laughs) I only go for 19-year-olds. He then forces her to pour him coffee. Like, immediately after he asks her to marry him, he's like, pour me some coffee. And it's like, dog, please. So the gender roles in this marriage are really showing from the very beginning. So they call Mrs. Van Hopper up to Maxim's room to tell her about the situation And she acts very happy when Maxim's there. And Mrs. Van Hopper says that she'll arrange the wedding, but Maxim tells her not to because 
he knows the narrator doesn't like her very much and he leaves to go get her luggage and as soon as he's out of the room Mrs. Van Hopper starts scolding her and tells her that she thinks she'll do a bad job because she doesn't know enough to run Manderly and she says that Maxim only married her because he couldn't face being alone and then she smirks at her and calls her Mrs. De Winter in a really derisive tone, implying that she will do a horrible job. Love that. She probably felt very good after that conversation. Yeah, so I think this scene establishes a lot of the narrator's motivation, honestly, because the most recent thing she's heard from probably the closest thing she has to a parental figure before she moves in with Maxim is telling her that she's incapable of doing this new position she's just begun. Mm -hmm. Right after this, there's a quick scene of them leaving the marriage office in the same clothes and Maxim buys her a flower bouquet because she didn't get to have the big wedding. They then go to them driving up to Manderley, and he says that she shouldn't be afraid of coming to the house and that she should just be herself. He also says that she doesn't need to be worried about running the house because Mrs. Danvers can do all that. Mrs. Danvers is the head housekeeper. It then starts to rain really hard. Love. We love foreshadowing. It's foreshadowing that she's probably going to have not the best time, probably a bad time at this house. The music then turns more majestic as they pull up to the house which is like absolutely gorgeous it's like a castle it's it's a mansion but it looks like a castle we then see all of the servants standing out in the entry hall which is like very dramatic because it's a large number of them and then maxim apologizes for that mrs danvers walks out in front of all of the servants she's in stark contrast to everyone else because she's wearing all black and it's just such a vibe like She's such a vibe. The narrator then drops her gloves, and they both bend down to pick them up at the same time. Mrs. Danvers then subtly shames the narrator for not being rich enough to have had a maid before, and she says that the East Wing, where Maxim and the narrator are living now, has been recently redone since it had never been used beforehand, and points out that there is no view of the sea, while the West Wing, which is apparently where Maxim lived before, does look out over the sea. Mrs. Danvers also says that she moved to Manderley when Rebecca did, showing that the two had a close relationship. The narrator says that the two should be friends, and that she wants to leave all the household arrangements to Mrs. Danvers, since she doesn't know a lot about running house herself. On their way downstairs, Mrs. Danvers points out the door to the West Wing and says that the room past it is the most beautiful room in the house and says that it was the previous Mrs. De Winter's room. Additionally, the napkin that the narrator is given at the dinner also has Rebecca's initials on it. And she's sitting at the very end of those like super, super long tables um, across from Maxim. So they're super far apart. The next morning, the narrator meets Crawley, which is the estate manager at breakfast. Maxim then runs in and says that his sister Beatrice is coming over later that day and emphasizes that she's very honest and direct. When the narrator leaves breakfast and she's trying to get around the household, it's very clear that this is a new environment that she's not used to because she's getting lost and doesn't know where she's going and she feels a little out of place. The butler also told her that Rebecca always did her business in the morning room. In the morning room, 
She finds a bunch of notebooks with Rebecca's name on them and then responds to a phone call and says, Mrs. DeVinter has been dead for over a year before realizes that they were actually trying to contact her. Mrs. Danvers then comes in and it's clear that she expects her to act exactly like Rebecca did. After Mrs. Danvers leaves, she accidentally breaks a china figurine and then shoves it into a desk drawer under a bunch of papers and it looks very obvious that she tried to hide something under there because she just shoved papers on top of it. Yeah, Dahlia and I were watching this movie together and the entire time Dahlia was just making fun of (laughs) how she hid this china figurine. It's not very effective. No, it's not. So later that day, Beatrice Lacey, who is Maxim's sister, arrives, uh, and at this point, Maxim is still out for the day. Beatrice's husband says that he thinks that the narrator is probably an ex-chorus girl as the narrator is walking into the room, and Beatrice says that the narrator is not what she was expecting, not necessarily in a rude way, just as in she's not what she expected Maxim to fall in love with. Beatrice confirms that Mrs. Danvers is creepy and probably resents the narrator because Mrs. Danvers was extremely devoted to Rebecca. So here we get some confirmation that the narrator is not the only one thinking this about Mrs. Danvers, and we also get Beatrice explaining Mrs. Danvers' motivations. At lunch, Beatrice asks Maxime if they're going to have a masquerade ball like they used to. And then Beatrice's husband also keeps asking if the narrator does random, like, rich people activities, and she says she doesn't. Eventually, Beatrice's husband accidentally brings up sailing, and Maxim looks upset. After dinner, Beatrice asks the narrator if Maxim isn't mad about the way she looks, implying that she doesn't look that great. But then the narrator says that Maxim is never interested in how she looks, which Beatrice implies is a great change. Beatrice also mentions that Maxim has a very bad temper. That's concerning. Yeah. Everything about this man, from his little mustache to everything else, a little concerning. That should have been the first red flag. The mustache. <laughs> the mustache. Oh, I hate it. Maxim and the narrator take a walk around the grounds, and the dog, whose name is Jasper and is a cutie, runs off. The narrator wants to follow the dog, who Maxim says is going to a little cabin where they used to keep a boat. The narrator follows the dog even though Maxim tells her not to, and she finds the dog sort of like pining and looking sad outside the cabin. A man is inside the cabin who says cryptic things to the narrator and says not to tell anyone he was there and says that she is gone into the sea and will never come back. She sees the inside of the cabin, which is in disrepair and has a bunch of things labeled with Rebecca's name on them. And when she catches back up with Maxim after getting the dog, Maxim is really upset and says that she should never go to the cabin again. They both apologize to each other, and Maxim says that he sometimes gets angry for no reason, going back to Beatrice's comment about his temper. Maxim hands her a handkerchief to dry her eyes, and after she's feeling better again and has stopped crying, she notices that the handkerchief is monogrammed with Rebecca's name, upsetting her all over again. Does Maxim not have handkerchiefs with his own name on it? For the thematic purposes of this movie, no. (laughs) (laughs) The next morning, she runs back into Crawley, who tells her that Maxim is giving all of the servants a race in celebration of their marriage. The narrator then tells Crawley about the man in the cottage, who he says is named Ben and is pretty harmless. 
Then Crawley also says that Maxim doesn't want the cabin fixed up because the boat Rebecca was sailing in before she drowned was stored in there. Crawley says that Rebecca died because the boat capsized and sank, but says that she was never afraid of anything. The narrator then asks Crawley why everyone is always comparing her to Rebecca, and he says that he finds her refreshing and that she has many good qualities like her kindness and modesty. The narrator also asks Crawley what Rebecca was really like, and he says that she was the most beautiful person he's ever seen. Which probably doesn't make the narrator feel amazing. No, but I do feel like he's trying to help her. He's just maybe not like the most sensitive person Mm -hmm. because everything he says up until that point is like the only nice thing that's been said to this narrator the whole movie and he really just like fumbles it at the end there yeah so then the narrator buys nicer dresses to try to impress maxim after her conversation with beatrice but maxim seems unimpressed and says it doesn't seem like her at all he still compliments her but he doesn't seem very happy about it They look at a slideshow of video clips from their honeymoon, which I just want to know, like, how they were making these. Like, did they have a cameraman traveling around with them the whole time, or... (laughs) The projector messes up, and while they're paused to fix it, Frith, the butler, asks for a word and says that Mrs. Danvers has accused another servant of stealing an ornament. When the ornament is described, the narrator realizes it's the china figurine she broke, and she owns up to her mistake. Maxim is confused why she didn't just say she broke it when it happened and asks if she's afraid of Mrs. Danvers. At that moment, Mrs. Danvers walks in and belittles the narrator for her behavior. They then return to their honeymoon slideshow, but Maxim says she's not acting like a proper mistress of the household. The narrator asks Maxim if he only married her because she's so dull there would never be any gossip about her. But Maxim totally freaks out when she mentions the possibility of gossip and turns off the slideshow. Maxim says he was selfish in marrying her and that she should have married someone her own age. And when the narrator asks if they're happy, Maxim walks away and says that he doesn't have an answer and could never be happy. He's so emo! God! Emo and a golden retriever. Because he looks like he'd be a golden retriever, but no. No, never. The next day, Maxim leaves her note saying that he had to leave for the day to do some business. The narrator's crying, but then she pretends like she wasn't when a maid comes in. She then looks out over in the window and sees a figure in the West Wing's window. Which is weird, because no one's supposed to be in the West Wing. I love the forbidden West Wing trope. Like, oh no, not the secret wing of the house. Oh wow, whatever could happen there. It's just like in um, Bly Manor. Yeah. yeah. She overhears Mrs. Danvers talking to a man named Jack, who she hasn't met before, but they both seem very aware that they shouldn't be seen. The narrator runs into Jack, who also mentions that Maxim wouldn't be happy to see him. Mrs. Danvers then walks in and introduces Jack as Mr. Favell. He leaves, saying that he shouldn't leave the young bride astray, and that she shouldn't mention his visit to Maxim, who, as mentioned before, would be unhappy to see him. As he's walking away, he mentions that he's also Rebecca's cousin. Then, after Jack Favell leaves, the narrator decides to investigate the West Wing in one of the most iconic scenes from this movie. It has lots of gauzy curtains and these giant, like, floor-to-ceiling windows that look out onto the sea. Mrs. Danvers finds her in the room, 
and the narrator tries to say that she only came in to close the window, but Mrs. Danvers calls her out on her lie since she knows the narrator was the one who opened it. Mrs. Danvers talks about how much she loves the room and how she keeps it just the way it was on the night Rebecca died. She shows the narrator Rebecca's clothes and rubs a fur coat on her face, which she said was a Christmas present from Maxim, who always gave Rebecca expensive gifts. She shows the narrator Rebecca's fancy lingerie collection, which Mrs. Danvers said were custom made by nuns. I don't know why the nuns were making lingerie, but that's they what, were. That's exactly what I was thinking just now. I was like, huh, that's a little sus. <laughs> then she describes the nighttime routine that Mrs. Danvers helped Rebecca with. Mrs. Danvers also shows the narrator one of Rebecca's nightgowns, emphasizing how see-through it is. The narrator walks away, and as she's leaving, Mrs. Danvers talks about how she always feels Rebecca is with her in the house, and the narrator starts crying. The narrator feels like she cannot escape Rebecca, understandable, and she calls Mrs. Danvers to meet her in the morning room to get rid of all of Rebecca's notebooks. Mrs. Danvers says that she can't get rid of them because they were Mrs. DeVinter's things, but then the narrator replies and says that she is Mrs. DeVinter. Then, Maxim comes back, and the narrator tells him that she wants to hold a masquerade ball like they used to. Maxim isn't super into the idea, but agrees. The narrator then says that she'll plan everything herself and teases him about how she's going to design her own costume that he'll love. She then sketches out many costume ideas, but doesn't like any of them. Mrs. Danvers finds these discarded sketches and suggests that she should dress like one of the family portraits in the house pointing out the one in particular that she claims is Maxim's favorite. It's the night of the ball, and we see all the other characters begin to arrive. Maxim tells his sister Beatrice that the narrator isn't down yet because she's keeping her costume a big secret. Beatrice knocks on the narrator's door and offers to help her with the costume, but the narrator refuses, saying she wants to keep it a secret from everyone. The narrator is super excited and giddy, and the maid is complimenting her and being nice, like really hyping her up, and the narrator seems so excited, and she walks dramatically down the staircase to surprise Maxim, but when he sees her, he totally freaks out and demands that she change, even starting to yell at her. As the narrator is walking up the stairs to change, she sees Mrs. Danvers walk into the West Wing. The narrator follows her and confronts her. And Mrs. Danvers said that she purposely set her up to wear the same costume as Rebecca wore a year ago, but that the narrator could never compare to the beauty of Rebecca even wearing the same dress. Mrs. Danvers said that the narrator should never have tried to take Rebecca's place, and that only the sea could have destroyed Rebecca, as no person was strong enough to. The narrator collapses onto the bed sobbing, and Mrs. Danvers points out that the window is open. Mrs. Danvers then subtly tries to convince her to jump out the window by saying that Maxim doesn't want her and that she has no place at Manderley. Intense. Right as the narrator might have actually jumped out of the window, a flare goes up into the sea and everyone at the party rushes to the shore. The narrator then changes and goes out to the shore, where she runs into Ben, the man from the cottage, who emphasizes once again that Rebecca will never come back. She then runs into Crawley, who tells her that Rebecca's sailboat had been found and that the whole scandal from a whole year ago would come back. The narrator sees a light on in Rebecca's sailboat cabin and finds Maxim there. Then, Maxim says that he f he'd forgotten his anger about the costume, and the narrator says that she wants their relationship to start over, and she understands that he will never love her. 
Maxim says that it's too late and that they've lost chances at happiness because the thing he's dreaded most has happened. He says Rebecca has won and that her shadow has been what has kept them apart. Maxim tells her that the diver also found Rebecca's body in the cabin and that the body that they'd found right when she died wasn't really Rebecca and that he'd falsely identified her on purpose. Maxim says that he knew Rebecca's body would be found because he was the one who had put it there, admitting to her murder. The narrator says that she knows that they could never be close because he loved Rebecca still and was always comparing her to Rebecca, but Maxim's super confused and says that he hated Rebecca and had never loved her, and that was not what was keeping them apart. He says that he was enchanted by her at first, but Rebecca was incapable of love, tenderness, and decency. He says that the cliff where him and the narrator first met was where him and Rebecca were on their honeymoon which is also where Rebecca told him about how she planned on acting. He says that he wanted to kill Rebecca, but didn't. Rebecca then made a bargain with him, that she would pretend to be a faithful wife and would make Manderley the most famous showcase in the world if he would let her get away with whatever she wanted to do in secret. Narrator then forgives Maxim and says that she understands. Maxim also describes how Rebecca cared less and less about the bargain and started bringing her disreputable friends to Manderley. The narrator says that Favelle had been there recently, and Maxim says that Favelle was one of the men that she was having an affair with. Maxim had caught them one time and then confronted Rebecca, but Rebecca told Maxim that she was pregnant and that no one could prove that it wasn't his. Maxim was then extremely upset that someone who wasn't his kid would end up being the heir to Manderley. So Maxim hit her, which then pushed Rebecca into a piece of a ship's tackle and killed her from a head wound. Maxim then describes how he put his body on the ship, then sailed the ship out and sunk it by putting a hole at the bottom. The narrator seems pretty willing to overlook this whole situation and tries to think of ways to help Maxim out of getting caught by this new discovery. But Maxim seems totally defeated, although he does say that he loves the narrator. Crowley calls and tells Maxim that the chief constable is looking for him and wanted to see if he would identify the new body on the ship of Rebecca. Chief Constable Julian arrives and soothes Maxim and says that mistaking the body was a natural mistake, but tells him that there will be a new inquest and lots of publicity that can't be avoided. Julian also says the boat is being investigated to determine how it sunk. Frith then tells the narrator that Mrs. Danvers has been shocked by the news and that the staff will do everything they can to help her. The narrator then tells Maxim that he absolutely cannot lose his temper at the inquest. The narrator says that she wants to go to the inquest and that she can't be separated from Maxim. Maxim agrees but says that she has lost her naivete and that he killed it by telling her about Rebecca. The two kiss and seem closer now than they have for a lot of the film. Ben, who's the man from the cabin, is interviewed at the inquest. He says that he doesn't want to say anything because he doesn't want to be sent to the asylum. The owner of the shipyard is also interviewed and says that Rebecca is an excellent sailor. He says that the valves to drain out the boat were open, implying that the boat was purposely sunk and that the holes in the boat were made from the inside. Maxim is then interviewed. They ask him if... Rebecca might have committed suicide, but he's clearly very upset. Maxim is also asked if his relationship with Rebecca was happy, and he totally freaks out and gets angry. The narrator then passes out in the audience, ending the questioning. 
So I think it's really interesting to consider here whether we think the narrator actually passed out or if we think she pretended to pass out to stop the inquest. I think she pretended. I think she pretended as well, but the movie leaves it fairly ambiguous except for Favelle taunting her about doing it on purpose later. But I don't think the movie provides a clear answer here, but I definitely think she did it on purpose because she's pretty smart. I think she would know to do that. So they leave the inquest so that the narrator can get some food and recover. And while they leave, the narrator reminds Maxim to be more careful about his temper. Maxim leaves to go find Crawley, and Favelle comes up to the narrator in her car and is just sort of generally being creepy. Maxim comes back and politely tries to get him to go away, but Favelle gets into the car instead and starts eating their food. Favelle says that Maxim will be accused of the murder sooner or later, and says that he has a note from Rebecca from the day she died. He won't say what's in it, but he does say it will prove she wouldn't commit suicide that same night. Favelle says he wants Maxim's money, implying that he will blackmail Maxim in exchange for not showing the note to the court. Maxim and Favelle then go to a private room at a bar, where Maxim invites Colonel... I was going to say colonel. Colonel. (laughs) Colonel. I do that every time. (laughs) Where Maxim invites Colonel Julian and the narrator into the private room. Maxim then tells Julian that Favelle would withhold evidence from the court and should be arrested. But then Julian reads the note from Rebecca, which says that she had been to the doctor and would meet with Favelle to tell him something important that night. Favelle tries to convince Julian that the note proves that Maxim murdered Rebecca, but Maxim points out Favelle's blackmail. Julian says that he needs more evidence for murder, and Favelle says that Ben is a witness. Favelle also implies that the narrator fainted on purpose in the courtroom to save Maxim, and Maxim slaps Favelle. Julian then asks Favelle for a motive for Maxim to kill Rebecca, and Favelle brings Mrs. Danvers into the room to explain Maxim's motive where Mrs. Danvers then says that Rebecca had gone to a doctor in London and that love was only a game to her. Mrs. Danvers doesn't want to give Rebecca's secrets away, but Favelle convinces her to talk by saying Maxim murdered her. Favelle says that the doctor's visit was because Rebecca was pregnant with his child, so Maxim killed her in order to protect his honor, but Mrs. Danvers denies that Rebecca was pregnant. Julia and Maxim and Favelle go to Dr. Baker, who was Rebecca's doctor in London. Dr. Baker is confused because he says he's never had a patient named DeWinter. He looks through the patients on the day that they know she went to the doctor, and they realize she'd used Mrs. Danvers' name to book the appointment. Dr. Baker says Rebecca would likely have committed suicide because she was about to die of cancer. She had thought she might have been pregnant, but instead she was about to die, and they caught the diagnosis very, very late, so it was not treatable, and Dr. Baker says she did not have much time left. It's implied that she goaded Max into killing her on purpose, and Maxim is extremely shocked by all this information. Julian tells off Favelle for his blackmail and says that he'll protect Maxim from any further accusations. Maxim then tells Crawley about the whole situation and Crawley comforts him. Favelle also tells Mrs. Danvers that Rebecca had cancer and had committed suicide, emphasizing that the narrator will be happy and will stay at Manderley forever. Maxim wants to get back to Manderley very quickly and says that he has a feeling that something's wrong. Whoa. 
Mrs. Danvers is walking through Manderley in the dark holding a candle and stands very ominously over the narrator asleep in an armchair. Maxim is then seen driving up and realizes that what he thought was the sun coming up was actually Manderley on fire. He drives up and the entire house is ablaze in a massive fire. He asks Frith where the narrator is and she then runs up with the dog. The two are reunited and the narrator says that Mrs. Danvers told her that she'd rather destroy Manderley than see the two happily live there. We then go to a shot of Mrs. Danvers standing in the window of the West Wing, watching the house burn around her, and then is killed by the roof falling in. The camera then shows a pillowcase with the monogrammed R go up in flames. We hope that this was more interesting than the Wikipedia summary. Join us after the break as we analyze how the Hayes Code impacted this movie and why Mrs. Danvers is definitely a lesbian. Hi, this is Elizabeth Crane just chiming in to say please rate our podcast five stars and leave a written review if you have a spare second. This is the metric that a lot of podcast apps use to track which podcasts are being listened to a lot. So we would really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you. Welcome back to the analysis section of our podcast. So one of the biggest issues we wanted to talk about in this episode was the Hayes Code and how it's contributed to depictions of queer people in cinema. The Hayes Code, also known as the Motion Picture Production Code, was established in 1930, but it wasn't really enforced that heavily until 1934. It continued to be strictly enforced until the late 1950s, at which point enforcement became lax, but the code wasn't fully removed until 1968. The main point of the code was to ban things like profanity, nudity, miscegenation for some reason, specifically slavery of white people for even more confusing reasons, also racism, which I feel like is contradictory to the previous two points, and it also banned ridiculing the clergy. So there's a lot to unpack there already. But most relevant for us, it also banned any inference of sexual perversion, which mainly applied to depictions of queer people. The characters who were seen as breaking these rules in a movie could not get a happy ending. They had to either be punished by the law, learn the error of their ways, or die. So this was why movies from this time period always had a very black and white morality code where the good characters were fine and the bad characters had horrible tragic endings. And for a lot of these reasons, these queer characters always had to be portrayed as villains and they could not ever be shown as being like in the right and they always had to die at the end and the long-time enforcement of this code and the ramifications of this code far into the future have led to a lot of the depictions of queer people to this day a lot of people have specifically noted how it applies to characters like disney villains being queer-coded, and that's just one of many, many examples of how more modern movies have sort of taken aspects of this code and moved them into more modern productions, even though the code is not in place anymore. So there's a reason why so many villainous characters are seen as queer. 
That makes so much sense. I guess I never really thought about that because, like, as we were talking with the Hayes Code, I remembered that I did indeed know something about it. And that was only because of comedy, because of Lenny Bruce. But now, like, also now hearing it in correlation to the portrayal of queer characters and like queer coded villains that just makes so much more sense about how these tropes have still remained pervasive and the impact it still has on media today because like just because like sure it ended in like 1968 or whatever but like it was there for a hot minute and it's still like there's still a lot of things that in our there's still a lot of things in our media today that we still have to work through yeah There are several ways in which the Hayes Code impacted Rebecca. One thing that they did have to change specifically for the code is that in Daphne du Maurier's book, Maxim just totally clear-cut murders Rebecca, so they changed the ending of the film to make it more of an accident. So in the movie, she hits her head after he pushed her, and it's also sort of suicide, There's enough ways in which the movie muddies the waters that it's hard to say that Maxim specifically murdered her, which, you know, he kind of did, but it was enough of a gray area that the, uh, like, review board of the Hayes Code let Hitchcock get away with it. More relevant to our podcast, the movie also aggressively hints that Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca are both queer women, but they're never actually able to say it. And they're both killed, punishing them for their alleged sexual perversion. So fun. Um, not really. <laughs> Sorry, so fun is just my reflex. It's kind of depressing, isn't it? It's very depressing. And I do agree that they aggressively hint at Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca, both queer women, especially the scene in the West Wing um, where it's Mrs. Danvers and the narrator and Mrs. Danvers goes like, it's transparent or whatever, or it's see-through. Like that whole scene when she's talking about like, I help her get ready to go to bed, blah, blah, blah. Implying that she's basically naked the whole time. Literally. And, like, I feel like, once again, not only queer-coded villains, but we still kind of see that in media today, where characters are queer-coded, even if they're not villainous. I mean, sure, I guess Rebecca and Mrs. Stanworth are also are seen as villains in this story. But in general, when we do see queer characters in media today, a lot of it is unsaid, and it's, like, based on certain actions or the way they talk about something like that that it's not very it's so much of media portrayal today i feel like isn't very in your face about queerness yeah it's definitely a running issue that a lot of characters are just implied to be queer like when the show our flag means death came out i was like oh it's queer bait again and then they actually were queer and when i tell you i lost my mind it was crazy I was like, they just kissed. This never happens. Mm -hmm. It's more like, wow, look at her. Look at her see-through lingerie. (laughs) (laughs) The see-through lingerie. Oh, my God. Love. (laughs) Iconic. (laughs) So there's been a lot of speculation about how the portrayal of these queer characters was allowed under the Hayes Code. Some people have theorized that it was subtle enough that the review board didn't actually notice that these characters were supposed to be queer. 
which it's not really that subtle, but like, okay, maybe if you're boring and straight in the 40s, it would be subtle. I don't think it's subtle either, but I think it's kind of like, since society's already so heteronormative and stuff, they're going to see this and they're going to be like, ah, they're just good friends. They're just good friends. They were, she, she helped her get ready for bed and saw her naked every night. Just good friends. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's really just heteronormative behavior slash perspectives on the film. Yeah, I agree. So what do we really think is going on with these characters and how would we interpret them as queer? I personally think that Rebecca is meant to be bi or pan, and part of the reason why Maxim was so shocked by her behavior is that he learned she was interested in women. I don't think the text necessarily says that, but I personally think it's more fun to interpret it that way. I agree. I feel like, I think it's more fun because also, like, it kind of goes back to the scene where, on the cliff, where Rebecca's telling him, like, this is how I'm going to act, you're just going to have to deal with it, and he's like, damn, I really was just her beard. I don't even have a beard. I have a stupid little mustache. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is so funny. I also think that it's, this is more directly stated in the text. I think that Mrs. Dandrews is clearly supposed to be a lesbian who is in a relationship of some sort with Rebecca. It's also worth pointing out that Mrs. Dandrews was sort of older and implied to be more of a mother figure in the book, and the relationship was a little less directly hinted at but Hitchcock specifically aged her down. She is a bit older than the narrator, but we also know that Rebecca is older than the narrator, so presumably they would have been a similar age to each other, which makes that sort of like mother-daughter relationship pretty much impossible, and they clearly have some sort of stronger relationship, so I would suggest that it was romantic. It's Rebecca and her little goth girlfriend. Oh my god, I need a goth girlfriend. (laughs) So what if she's a little evil? (laughs) So what? (laughs) So also another topic that people have speculated about a lot was whether or not Mrs. Danvers was ever interested in the narrator and whether that's part of what's supposed to be implied. I personally think she may have been in like the first like one or two scenes like when they brushed hands like picking up the glove I was like oh my god this is so homoerotic but I think she stopped being interested as soon as she realized what the narrator's personality was like and how like shy and reserved she is so I personally don't really think that's part of the plot for most of the movie. I agree like especially about the first couple of scenes and I feel like this can also be tied back into the scene in the morning room where Mrs. Danvers comes in and expects the narrator to act exactly like Rebecca because you know she's expecting the new Mrs. Deventer to be the same thing but then like once again as the movie goes on and we learn more about the narrator and also Mrs. Danvers learns more about the narrator I think it's clear that the narrator really isn't her type Yeah, for sure. Another interesting topic here is that Daphne du Maurier, the author of the original novel, may have been queer, although it's a bit unclear because obviously this was like the early 1900s, so it's kind of speculation, but it seems that she did have various relationships with other women, including her publisher's wife and an actress. And she may have identified as transgender if she lived today because she wrote about feeling like a boy stuck in a woman's body, 
Although due to the vocabulary available at the time, it's very hard to make that comparison to modern day terminology. However, it's worth noting that she felt great shame about her sexuality and was very committed to staying with her husband, who she had several children with. And I think that this viewpoint is very clear in her work. And I think that also part of what might be present in this work is internalized homophobia, as we know that she was very concerned about this. Yeah, I think you can really, like, I feel like even just, like, the end, you know, the gay person being burned in flames, kind (laughs) of. Yeah. I think you can definitely see the homophobia throughout the film. Obviously, I mean, I personally haven't read the novel, think it would be a really fun novel to read oh it's so fun i'm obsessed so another fun fact about this movie is that this was alfred hitchcock's first hollywood film his other previous movies had been made in germany so he just moved to making hollywood films and as a result he wasn't really sure what to expect and got in a lot of fights with his producer david o selznick They had a lot of arguments about creative control over the project, and at one point, Hitchcock had banned Selznick from the set. Power move. (laughs) Selznick wanted to stay as true to the book as possible, which pretty much ended up being what happened. This is extremely similar to the novel, with the ending being really one of the only deviations. And it's not even that large of a deviation like it just changes a little bit about the circumstances of Rebecca's death and I think that honestly it worked out pretty well even though Hitchcock is you know like a master of film but like the end product is still good and I love faithful adaptations and I love DeMaurier's novel so I'm okay with what happened even though it's maybe not what Hitchcock wanted. I mean, I haven't read the novel, but, like, I can't imagine the film in any other way. I mean, the only difference that I remember right now, based on what you've said, is, like, uh, Mrs. Stanwyrs being older. But I kind of, I kind of, I mean, obviously we have, we never see what Rebecca looks like, but I don't mind Mrs. Stanwyrs being younger. Yeah, and let's talk about not ever seeing Rebecca. I think that's a really key component to this movie because we spend so much time with this narrator, but we never learn her name. And meanwhile, we never really learn anything about what Rebecca looks like, except that it's very different from the narrator. And we hear Rebecca's name all the time. We see her name engraved on everything. It's really the linchpin of what is meant to make this movie scary to the audience is that the narrator cannot escape this woman and whether she's an actual ghost or she's just being interpreted as a ghost her presence is haunting this movie a hundred percent i mean even before the narrator even steps into manderley you know like First thing she finds out of Maxim is his wife died recently. Second thing, his wife drowned. (laughs) And then from the moment she enters Manderley, it's like Mrs. Danvers is right there front and center being like, dog, sorry, (laughs) Rebecca, I love her. You, not as much. But I I think it's always very interesting when they use that device because whenever I think of female characters not having a name I always end up thinking of mice of mice and men oh yeah yeah 
Because one of the female characters in the book, I'm literally not remembering. Not even her name, because she doesn't have a name in the book. But her title. But the whole time, she's referred to as the wife of one of the characters. And that device was used in the book to show how she's objectified by everyone else and how she is an object. And I feel like we kind of see that here with Rebecca and the narrator, you know? And it kind of goes back into how also Maxim treats the narrator because he's like, I don't want you to grow up. I like you being naive, blah, blah, blah. And it, I feel like from that, you really see the difference between the narrator and Rebecca because the narrator is this person here who's belonging, not belonging, but is somewhat portrayed as an object to Maxim. You know, whereas Rebecca is punished for being herself. And I feel like we see that throughout. And, you know, this isn't to, like, harp on the narrator or anything. But I just think that's it's a really interesting portrayal in how the women are shown in this film. Especially since this film is from, like, 1940. <laughs> it kind of, once again, plays into gender stereotypes and the gender binary and also just gender norms. Because it's like... As a woman, you know, don't be bold, don't be yourself. This is why, like, this is why Maxim likes narrator more than he likes Rebecca, if that makes any sense. It does. It makes a lot of sense. And to go back to your point about female characters not being named, I think a good example we can pull from horror movies is the female Cenobite from Hellraiser. Uh, the movie features four Cenobites, and the three male Cenobites all have names, like Pinhead, uh, and the female Cenobite is just called the female Cenobite for some reason, because, you know, she doesn't need a name, no. obviously. Like, she's a girl, that's enough! Her defining characteristic? Female. <laughs> and I think it's so ironic for that movie specifically because the Cenobites are all supposed to be very androgynous, especially if you go back to Clive Barker's novel, The Hellbound Heart. But they still, the movie takes that moment to be like, but this one, she's definitely female. Um, so I think your point is really valid about women in film being objectified. So what do you think about the narrator in this? Because I definitely think there's two sides to this character where you could read her as very just sort of at the whim of other characters. Like, she's definitely timid, like, doesn't quite know how to stand up for herself. But I think that she really comes into her own by the end of the movie. I agree, too. I think, I feel like at the beginning she was very naive, but the turning point for me which I think is different than the turning point for Maxim. Because for, for him, it was like when he told her about the death of Rebecca, for, or the murder of Rebecca. For me, I think the turning point was when she burned all of Rebecca's letters and stuff, and she was like, I'm Mrs. Duventer, you know? And I feel like that was her coming into her role as the head of the household, and also taking responsibility for it. Because even when she comes in, sure, like, uh, Mrs. Van Hopper was like, dog, you're not do gonna do a good job. And then Maxim was also like, you can just leave everything to Mrs. Danvers. But this was her being like, nah, like, this is my job now. I'm gonna do what I can to be the best, you know? And I, I think that was the turning point for her character, where I started to appreciate her more. And also, I thought she was really coming into her own. 
Because like it's like she wasn't just gonna sit there and let everyone just talk about Rebecca. She was like, I'm gonna make myself known. And I respect that. Yeah, I agree. I think she has an arc and by the end of the movie she's able to stand up for herself. And she does. She asserts herself several times. I think especially if you interpret her fainting as being an act. Yeah. Because, like, I don't think the narrator at the beginning of the film would have even thought about that, you know? And it's just, it shows how smart she is, you know? And that she shouldn't be taken lightly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm here for her, queen. Yeah, I do like her. So, like most films that take place in the past, the costumes are so pretty. But I also think we should analyze why they could be important to the plot of the movie. They definitely represent who the characters are. No one's trying to, like, hide anything behind their costumes. Like, the narrator, especially when, like, she picks out what she wants to wear and isn't trying to impress Maxim, she dresses nice and just, like, normal. She's wearing, like, button-down shirts and skirts, She's wearing, like, normal, sensible shoes for tennis playing or whatever. And in contrast to that, Mrs. Danvers is wearing super creepy floor-length high-collar black dresses and looks like she's in a completely different film. So she looks like it's stark contrast. Like, every time you see Danvers and then the background is, like, more white-ish and then you just see her. And it's so fun. But I also think it's really interesting when you compare the narrator's clothes to Rebecca's clothes because I think it once again showcases how society at the time probably thought women should dress. It's like you should be modest, you should dress like this, you shouldn't be too gaudy, blah blah blah. Hence the different outcome at the end with Rebecca getting cancer and being murdered and I mean although the ending is kind of unclear but it's presumed that like the narrator is fine at the end you know like she she her and maxim are fine yeah i think the ending is essentially that the two are continued to be married uh, but they can't live at manderley anymore and they're sort of still haunted by their past yeah yeah so speaking of rebecca's fashion the narrator tries to copy it later in the movie but she always looks super uncomfortable in it like she's trying to be something she's not like we see her in like the black dress when they're looking at the slideshow and we see that when she's walking down in it she doesn't seem very confident even though this is like a new look she's trying out like she should be excited but she seems a little awkward yeah and I I thought that that detail was also really, the detail of the black dress was also really interesting because earlier in the film, Maxim said something like, I don't ever want to see you in like a shiny black dress or something like that. Yeah, he does say that. Yeah. And I I thought that that was just really interesting because it's clear she's, like, as you said, she's trying to be something that she's not, but she's also trying to fit what she thinks maxim likes based on what everyone said about rebecca even though he's already told her like dog i'm not that's not my thing yeah i think it's mostly on the advice of beatrice but she specifically did have this conversation with maxim where he was like please don't ever wear this and she was like maybe i will which would be fun if it was just for herself but she's only doing it because she thinks it's what maxim wants exactly do what makes you happy and then she does look happy in her costume the one that's based modeled off of the portrait that 
Mrs. Stanwers told the narrator was Maxim's favorite, but she didn't know that it was something that Rebecca had also worn, so immediately, like, her hopes, her happiness is all dashed away. I felt so bad. I was like, damn, she's just she's just trying to do her best dog. Like, Mrs. Danvers really had to do her dirty like that. Yeah, I agree. I felt so bad for her in that scene. Like, she was so happy. Mrs. Danvers really just, like, sabotaged her happiness. And she looked good. Yeah. She looked so pretty. So fancy. I need to go to a masquerade ball for yeah. personal reasons. Usually, most of the film, she looked like she wanted to sneeze. <laughs> but she looked really pretty. <laughs> love her though like she looked like she was about to sneeze every time she wanted to cry <laughs> but like it's camp did you know that that actress joan fontaine is actually the only actress to have won an oscar for a hitchcock film i think you mentioned that to me <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't for this film but it was for another hitchcock film she did Hitchcock got, like, no Oscar recognition ever, but she was one of the only people who did while working for him. Good for her. Yeah, she's kind of an icon. I started watching, and I thought she was Olivia de Havilland from Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, Mm -hmm. which is, like, an old, like, Betty Davis film that I'd seen, and I was like, is that that lady? And I Googled it, and it turns out they're sisters. Oh. And that's why I thought they looked the same. (laughs) So let's rate this film. In this podcast, we rate films in two different ways. One, on how we much we enjoyed the film just as a whole, and two, on how much we thought the film incorporated queer elements. So in terms of how good the film was as a whole, I think I'd give this maybe an 8 out of 10 because it's such a classic, but it's also... That's what makes it good and holds it back at the same time because I feel like it's so old that it makes it a bit more difficult to enjoy. Like there's definitely some moments where it's very slow paced. They can't really show a lot of stuff on screen because it would upset the Hayes Code people. Uh, but I do think there's so much about this movie that makes it fantastic. Yeah, I would say probably like a 7 out of 10 for me. I feel like kind of like what you were saying like how it is an older movie i think i do enjoy some things that are like more faster paced and i tend to make fun of the dramatics in old movies so yeah i'm kind of like a noted alfred hitchcock fan so i'm always gonna read it a little higher than you i'm sure which is so valid like i really enjoyed it but it's probably not something I would rewatch on my own time. That makes sense. Just because it's not my thing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Now we're going to rate how queer this film is. I I would say probably like a 3 out of 10. Just because Hayes Code, they couldn't really be super outward about it. Um, There are definitely so many scenes where you can interpret as queer, but it's not as outwardly queer as it could have been but also like haze code like this is the 1940s yeah exactly i was also gonna give it a three out of ten for the same reasons it's just they couldn't show anything yeah. and that's not their fault no they tried <laughs> they really they tried they it. really <laughs> they said maybe it could be queer but it wasn't but the scene where she was like this nightgown is so see-through <laughs> that's pretty queer Join us next week for episode four. 
in this podcast, we always try to tie the plot of one episode to the next in terms of what we're covering. So our connection from this episode to the next one is going to be maids that could be your goth girlfriend. See you next week. Queer by Candlelight is a podcast hosted, created, and edited by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. Cover art by Dahlia Kumar. Music by Elizabeth Crane. Music recorded by Elizabeth Crane and Ryan Allegretti. Thank you.